bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, November 30th, 2021 podcast. This week's podcast addresses a state and local tax planning opportunity that is available to many business owners. The planning opportunity relates to the limitation on the deductibility by individuals of state and local taxes. More specifically, the Republican tax bill enacted in December of 2017 limits the deductibility of state and local taxes by individuals to $10,000 a year. This limitation has its greatest effect on most individuals by limiting the ability of individuals to deduct state and local income taxes. Now I emphasize this limitation by individuals because the limitation on the deduction of state and local income taxes does not apply to corporations and partnerships. Rather, corporations and partnerships are generally allowed to deduct their state and local income taxes as a business expense and are therefore not subject to the $10,000 limitation that individuals face. Well, fast forward, last November, the Internal Revenue Service formally acknowledged this difference when it issued IRS Notice 2020-75. The IRS Notice clarified that state and local income taxes paid by a partnership or an S-corporation are allowed as a deduction generally with computing non-separately stated taxable income or loss. Now, as a response to the IRS guidance, and even in advance of the IRS guidance, a number of states modified their state tax rules. Now, we'll note that the Build Back Better Act that was passed by the House would increase the state and local tax deduction limit well beyond $10,000. However, uh, we do expect to see changes in that increase in the limit in the Senate, should the Senate end up passing the bill. So we're not sure how that $10,000 limit may be increased in the year ahead. And I would also note that Bill does propose sunsetting limitation uh, sometime out in the future. Now, this week's podcast will help listeners learn more about this potential tax savings opportunity. We're going to start off with some background as to how states are responding to IRS Notice 2020-75. Responses do vary by state. And we'll look at two of the primary ways states do address this planning opportunity. We'll then discuss which taxpayers entities are qualified for this potential tax saving strategy. Then we'll discuss some specific actions we want to take when electing this alternative taxation regime. Joining me in this week's podcast are two of Novogratz's state tax planning experts. My partner, Tom Bowman from our St. Louis office and Novogratz principal, Raysa Kareem from our New York City office. Both Tom and Raysa are returning guests in Tax Credit Tuesday, and they both help clients with their state tax saving strategies including how to expand their state tax deduction by applying these pass-through entity rules in certain states. Now, let me give you a caveat. I want to know that today's discussion is a simplified, I mean, that sounds so simple when you're listening to it, but it is a simplified overview of what is a complex and nuanced issue or issues. There's more to this tax planning strategy that we can fed into a single podcast. Moreover, each and every taxpayer is unique, and as such, please make sure that you consult with an experienced state tax advisor about your particular tax situation and goals. We have a lot of important ground to cover today, so if you're ready, let's get started. So Tom and Raysa, thank you for joining us again on Tax Credit Tuesday. Thank you for having us again. Nice to be hey, back. Thank you, Mike. We look forward to discussing this topic. No, it's a very timely topic as we approach your end. 
So I gave a general overview of the current deduction limitation for individuals of state and local taxes in my introduction. But I did note that the IRS released guidance to notice 2020-75 with respect to this tax planning strategy. And in that notice, I'll also note to our listeners that the notice was basically saying that the IRS intended to issue regulations and that talked about in the notice what areas they were intending to issue regulations for my guidance on this tax planning strategy. But the fact that it was released in 2020, this guidance means there was a three-year gap between enactment of this limitation on the deduction and the issue of this IRS guidance that covers the tax treatment of income tax payments made by partnerships and S-corporations. So Tom, why do you think it took so long to get the guidance? And then if you could also share why this guidance was so significant. Well, Mike, I've been practicing as a tax consultant for 40 years, and I can make the case that a three-year interval by the IRS to act on something is actually not that long. That's so, true. Well, the time span. But so I think that, you know, given the fact that IRS generally operates at a glacial pace, it wasn't too surprising that it took three years. I think they were pro finally prompted to act because of all the uncertainty that the law created, because there was language in the host uh, committee report that accompanied the bill that indicated that that passer entity taxes should still be deductible. But the question was whether that was actually the case or not. And there had been intervening uh, steps by various states to enact some kind of a alternative rule other than what the what has finally been adopted. Most of those related to some type of a charitable donation to the state. And Nyers actually came out with guidance rather quickly saying that that was not really workable. So, so I think you're going to... Uh, attribute the IRS delay and guidance of, because of their, their normal hesitation to work quickly on uh, almost anything, just because they're so big, busy and they're, and they're, they are understaffed. So I, I wasn't too surprised it took them three years to come out with some, some guidance. Also, I would just note that it wasn't as if they didn't have other, <laughs> you know, 2017 tax act guidance yeah. to come out. So they had a lot of guidance to be issuing along with their regular workload. So uh, I agree. But that's very much the case. Yes, I, I would agree with that. You also act about what the significance of this is. Well, if you can, particularly with taxpayers in high income ta tax states, you know, where the tax rate might be exceed 10%, and if they have a significant amount of, and they might previously have been deducting state taxes on the federal return of, you know, six figures. And then all of a sudden it's, it's clawed back under the new rule starting in 2018 to only $10,000, that's a significant drop in their itemized deductions on their federal tax return and a significant increase in their federal tax liability. So, so this, is, this was a, a very significant change for individual taxpayers to limit their state tax deduction to $10,000. So that's why having some provision where you can still get the benefit of state taxes above $10,000 is a real significant benefit to individuals. Right. And that's the beauty of this notice is it does validate uh, some of the structures that were uh, being adopted by the states and certainly led to more states adopting such rules. So maybe we could talk about that because this, you know, prior to 2017 and this limitation on the state and local tax deduction of 10,000, there weren't very many states that had a tax, an individual tax on partnerships or S corporations. They did exist, but it was uh, rare. Now, as we look forward from today, maybe you could discuss, Tom, how many states have actually enacted some changes to their laws 
uh, as well as how many are considering on real estate. Maybe you can even bucket the states into the different things in terms of how they're addressing this opportunity. Yes, so there's uh, 21 states that have passed the law. I'll, I'll list each of them in case our listeners want to know whether they're in a state that, that has passed the rule. But they include Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Georgia, Idaho, and Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, and New York, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Oregon, and finally, Rhode Island, South Carolina, and Wisconsin. All 21 of those states have passed a rule that is trying to take advantage of MODIS 2020-75. And then if you look at other states, there's three states that are considering currently adopting a rule of this nature, and they include Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. <clears throat> there's nine states that don't have an income tax or have a tax where this it just doesn't really apply, and they include Alaska, Florida, New, New Hampshire, which has an interest in dividends tax, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. And the other uh, states, which, which are 17 plus District of Columbia, have not uh, passed the rule or are not considering it to our knowledge. Great. Thank you for that list. And that list will be included in our podcast notes. And note that list is always changing. <laughs> so if you're listening to this uh, podcast much later than November 30th, know that the, the list is evolving. So Risa, the IRS guidance that was provided in notice 2020-75 did note uh, in the uh, intro that the states were considering changing their laws or had changed their laws so that partnerships or S-corporation taxable income would be taxed at the entity level. And then in turn, by virtue of having a tax applied to entity level, they would allow members of the partnership or owners of the S-corporation a corresponding or offsetting owner level state tax benefit. Because you certainly wouldn't want to have that income taxed for state tax purposes at the S-corporation or partnership level, then also have it taxed again at the individual level without having some pastor benefit. So maybe you could discuss what the two approaches are that states use as they adopt this strategy to ensure that the individual business owner doesn't end up paying two levels of state taxes. Thank you, Mike. So there, there are ifs and buts in all the states, but there are generally two themes that we see. One is an exclusion approach. So I can name Louisiana and Colorado, whereby they will tax the income uh, from the past through at the entity level. And by doing so, the federal taxable income will be lowered by the tax as imposed. And the individual's owner will then uh, not have to include that on their state level taxes. The other approach is a credit method. So under the credit method, the state will allow the entity to take the deduction and the individual owner will still have to uh, report it on their state tax return, but in, in return, they'll get a credit uh, on their state tax return to pay for their taxes. So it, it, bottom line is there's not gonna be double taxation at the state level. It's just the two approach they're taking. That makes sense. Either you exclude the income that was taxed at any level at the, for state tax purposes at the individual level, or you include the income on your return, but you get a at state tax credit for the taxes paid by the entity. So which of these two approaches do you find most prevalent? Mostly the uh, credit approach. That's what we're seeing. 
Louisiana, Colorado, as I mentioned, those are the uh, states that uh, are going on the exclusion route, but most of the other states that we frequently work on are on the credit approach. You know, that's probably not too much of, of a surprise because that's probably from a state tax administration perspective, probably the easiest uh, to adopt and maybe it makes that it doesn't affect the overall calculation of state taxes as dramatically potentially as the exclusion approach, but yeah. we both have pros and cons. Yeah, I think one advantage is, as I think about it now, is if an entity has multi-state uh, activity, the states are giving credit to each other for the state entity level taxes. So if you follow the states that are on the credit approach, it's much easier for the state tax credit for taxes paid in other state you know, issues. So those are, those becomes much easier. Yeah. Yeah, we, one thing we won't be able to cover <laughs> in any real detail in this podcast is the situation where you have investments and partnerships with multiple activities in multiple states. There's a lot of complexity to this rule for some taxpayers that we don't have time to cover in this podcast, which is why I gave the disclaimer at the beginning and why I will be, you'll be getting Rayses and Tom's email addresses towards the end. But let's talk a little bit more about the significance of the tax savings. So there are several variables involved in assessing what that net tax savings to an individual would be to the extent they elected this strategy. Uh, and when I say net tax savings, I mean, how much in federal income taxes that a taxpayer would save by using the strategy whereby they get, in essence, get a state tax deduction at the entity level, as opposed to being limited by 10,000 at the individual level. So there's this state tax savings or federal tax savings, I should say, from this structure. But then there is the potential for tax to pay slightly more in state taxes, depending upon you know, how the credit flows through and the rest. So Tom, maybe you could give an example as to the magnitude of the potential savings under this rule, such that listeners could decide to themselves, is this really worth them uh, thinking about and implementing? Yeah, so let's assume an individual had a million dollars of income that was eligible for this this program. And if they lived in a state with a 10% tax rate, what would happen without this doing this workaround? Well, well first of all, they would report a million dollars of income on their federal return and pay tax at, you know, at their, uh, basically at their effective tax rate on that income. That could be anywhere from a low of 15% to a high of 37% of federal taxes. And then on their state return, they would also report the million dollars and pay assuming a 10% state rate, a hundred thousand of taxes. But, well, the question is, what is the benefit of the tax state tax payment on their federal return? Prior to 2018, they could deduct all of the hundred thousand of state taxes. That's 10% of a million state tax liability would be a hundred thousand. Prior to 2018, you get a full deduction for the hundred thousand that, you know, as high as a 37% tax rate that saves you, you know, thirty $37,000. Uh, of federal taxes. And once the cap was added in 2018 through 2025, the, you lost the, the deduction except for 10,000. And from a practical perspective, you lost it entirely because you probably already have uh, $10,000 of personal property tax or real estate tax that you're already de deducting. So you effectively can potentially lose 100% of your state income tax deduction. That's a significant cost for many taxpayers, but particularly high income taxpayers. But even moderate taxpayers often spend pay more than ten thousand of total taxes uh, when you combine real estate taxes, prop, personal property tax, and income tax. So any uh, additional tax they can deduct is is a real benefit to them. So under this under this rule, what would happen is 
the instead of paying a hundred thousand of tax at the individual level, they they would own uh, an interest in a pasture entity that would report the million dollars of income, and and that would pay t that entity would pay tax. Let's assume at the same rate of of ten percent or a hundred thousand dollars, and that would ch change the income on the pasture return from a million to nine hundred thousand, and that is the amount of income that would actually be reported on the individual's federal income tax return. So by doing that, they're effectively uh, getting a deduction for the entire $100,000 of state taxes on their federal return as uh, sanctioned by notice 2020-75. So that's, and then theoretically, you know, on a, on a credit state where, you know, where, where they have the second alternative and they, they would report the same million dollars of income on their state return and then report a tax of 100000 but then get credit for the 100000 that was paid by the entity, you know, by the pasture entity. So their net additional tax in a perfect world is, is zero. That may not always work out perfectly, but that that is in the perfect world, they wouldn't pay any additional state tax. And so that that's effectively how it works. So, so oh. ultimately the federal, it's a federal savings strategy, federal tax savings strategy, and, and the net tax saved would be effectively the marginal rate for the individual, which is maybe a low of 15% to a high of 37%. So Tom, in your example, uh, if we take a million dollar taxpayer uh, with $100,000 of uh, deduction and 30% rate, the savings is $30,000. Whereas if he could not take this deduction under the pass-through taxes, he would have been able to take only 3,000. So it's, it's like almost like in this situation, like 10 times more in terms of uh, tax savings. Yeah, it's, it is a, it's a significantly better result. So it's, it is a, it's a real opportunity for individuals uh, to reduce their federal tax burden uh, that otherwise would not be available for them. And I just wanted to add, and that was a great, first of all, I want to comment that was a great example, Tom, it clarified the potential benefits. And I would just add for our listeners, that was a very simplified example that no could have caught me at the actual basis. And there's a lot more uh, interactions that you need to be contemplating. I'm sure as a listener, you're probably thinking of some of the other interactions uh, that are relevant, but we, once again, we can't go into all the various interactions, which is why this really has to be customized to the individual taxpayer. But you certainly understand that through that example, that there are some significant savings that are possible. And if you put something in place, there could be multi-year savings, depending upon, of course, what the Build Back Better plan and ultimately if enacted, how it would affect the deductibility of state and local taxes. But it is likely to be a multi-year strategy for most taxpayers. And so this is the, go ahead, please talk. Let me suggest one complicating factor that uh, would let people pause it to get some advice from a professional in this matter. Let's say for this million dollar example, the entity files uh, in multiple states uh, and apportions its million dollars of income among multiple states. And some of those states may have a, a, a pass-through workaround uh, bill enacted and others may not. And the question is, do you make the election in multiple states or not? How does that affect your resident state? That's where it can become very complicated where you really need to seek some advice. Exactly, yeah. So thank you for the example. Now, many of our listeners, I'm sure they gain, okay, that sounds interesting. Those tax savings sound notable, particularly when I think about it across multiple years. So how do I qualify? Is this something that I elect? Is it something that I'm automatically eligible for? You know, what if I'm operating through a business that I own 100% of, either directly or through a discarded entity and I'm showing my income on a Schedule C? 
So how, so Tom, maybe you could unpack the application of this to partnerships, S corporations, or businesses being operated in a manner that is getting reported on Schedule C of 1040. Okay. So all of the states that have, of the 21 states that have enacted the rule, all of them require the use of a pastor entity, which is defined to include an S corporation or a partnership, including an LLC operating as a partnership. And by pastor entity, that vernacular means that the entity normally doesn't pay tax at the entity level, but passes the income and losses through to the owners who report that activity on their on their own returns, whether it be a corporate uh, shareholder partner or an individual shareholder or partner. So none of the states allow you to use this rule if you own your business through a disregarded entity or directly through individual ownership. And the planning idea there would be to uh, transfer that business to a pass-through entity. For example, with a disregarded LLC, you could elect to be an S corporation if you wanted to, and uh, or bring in another member as a second member to uh, change that from a disregarded entity to a partnership for tax purposes. That may be unavailable with some professional services entities where state law may limit the type of partners you can have if they're not actually practicing in the professional services that the entity does. But so you, you know, but so in that case, you might have to default to, to an S corporation that's hundred percent owned by the, by the individual. But there are, there are, none of the states allow you to do this unless you have a pastor entity. And I would emphasize that if you currently have an entity that doesn't qualify, then try to convert it to a pastor entity. The issue there would be that you can only do it prospectively. You can't capture activity that, that occurred uh, during the year that was generated prior to the time the entity changed its structure from uh, a, a nothing or a disregarded entity to a S corp or a partnership. Now, thank you for that. That was really helpful. It's nice to know that if you're operating as a Schedule C, there is some potential. You obviously have to weigh the benefits of the tax savings with the uh, challenges and the costs of operating through a regarded entity, if you will, a partnership or an S corporation. It, it might be a good time for Raisa to outline some of the differences in the states about what type of pasture entities are eligible. You want to talk about some states and how, how they might change different the rules for what and what pastor entities actually qualify? Yeah, actually, that's a very good point because again, the states have uh, their, their own set of rules as to which what kind of entities uh, would qualify. I can give example of California. If you have a partnership who is a partner or a member in a partnership uh, or a corporation, then that partnership is not eligible to make this election. But similar rules are in New York as well. So, um, you know, many entities, if they have a publicly traded partnership as a partner, that makes that entity not eligible to make the election. Another complication is, is a consent. So some states would require all of the partners to consent. And in some other states, any representative partner from a partnership or authorized person can make the election and it's binding on all the members. So it becomes uh, really problematic and because you need to go and see which partners, which individual partners are going to be benefited from making that election or whether you know, it can be, can be detrimental to some because in, in, in some of the states, especially states that are going on the exclusion method, the 
tax at the first printed level is final. And if that rate is higher than the individual rate, potentially that individual partner is going to be paying more taxes essentially. So these are some complications around this election that we need to navigate through. Thank you for that, Razor. That was really uh, helpful. I mean, as we're noting at the course of this podcast, the savings can be substantial, uh, but there also could be complexities uh, depending upon how you're operating your business, how many states your business is in, how many partners you have, states of residence and the rest. And one of those questions that initially came to my mind when I was uh, reading the notice that the IRS released, as well as seeing the states adopting their uh, entity level taxation, is what about investment or portfolio income at the pass-through level? We've talked about that this uh, state tax deduction, and we've talked about how kind of implicit in our discussion so far is you have this entity that's operating a business uh, and it's generating business income that's being subject to the tax at the data level and the like. But what about the portion of pastor level income that's investment or portfolio income? Are the entity level taxes paid on that also eligible for this benefit to pass through to the uh, individual partners for federal income tax purposes? I think that's a very interesting question, Mike. Uh, and the reason I say that is because if you look at the state rules or the guidance they have provided so far, it only says, you know, income allocable to the partner, a source for the state. Only one state I can name, I mean, so far that I have looked at, it's Rhode Island, which specifically mentions that it's only in, uh, business income allocable to the state. So I believe that we have to wait for further guidance from the authorities. Tom, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, and they're related. There's two questions. One is, what does the state rules provide? Do, do they expand the rule to include investment income rather than just business income? And then the question is, the IRS has a say on this as well. And it, was it intended for this rule to apply to non-business income? Because it's very clear it does apply to business income. So there's some concern that that if states do allow it to apply to investment income, that the IRS will will pre preclude that benefit from occurring. And my guess is the, the only way we're going to find out about that is through additional guidance from the IRS, including regulations that they said they're going to issue that they haven't issued yet. Yep. Great. Thank you for that clarification that we don't know. There are issues there. So as I said in the uh, introduction, as I said in the course of the podcast, this issue is pretty complex and we can't go into every detail and nuance and discuss every possible, you know, sort of situation. But were there, with that in mind, or there were maybe one or two additional issues, Raisa, that you'd want to, you know, make sure that our listeners were aware of? Mike, I, I think we have already discussed it. I have a couple of yeah. thoughts, Mike. One is obviously you want to talk to your tax advisor and, and start the discussion with them because there may be some things you want to do by year end. There may be elections you have to make soon. If you're a cash basis passer entity and you're trying to get a deduction in 2021 for uh, the taxes, you, you arguably have to prepay them by 1231-21 in order to do that. Otherwise, if you make the election in 2021 but don't pay any taxes in 2021, then theoretically it's a 2022 deduction and you kind of uh, won't get the benefit that you're try trying to do. And then obviously I would certainly uh, suggest that people think about ways to deal with disregarding entities and Schedule C activity in order to try to 
uh, convert that to a different type of uh, structure that's a pass-through structure in order to take advantage of, of these rules if it's income and it's particularly if it's business income. I, I think another thing that our clients should look at is selecting the candidate entities. As I mentioned before, you know, each uh, state defines as to which, uh, what would be a qualified entity. So we have to look which state to make the election for, as Tom also mentioned before. And then if there's any entity, if there are any partners in that entity, which may uh, disqualify for the entity for that election in that particular state. So, I mean, and from my perspective, you know, I think identifying the right entity and in the right state and see if it's a cash basis, taxpayer record basis and take action by the year end. I would also say that the, once, once you go through the analysis of whether this is maybe of a benefit, then the question is, how do you elect and what do you need to do to keep electing going forward? There are dates that you're going to have to do things by, including possibly making an election. There is in, in, in California, you have starting in 2022, you have to make a 50% payment of your expected tax liability by June 15th of 2022 and every year thereafter with the second payment due later in the year. If you don't do that, then make that first payment. Then the, the law says you cannot take advantage of this, of this pass-through deduction. So the, you, you have to understand all the nuances of every state law in order to make sure that you uh, comply with every requirement that they impose. And, and then, you know, clearly if you're operating in multiple states, then you have to really think carefully about uh, whether to make the election in more than one state, assuming more, more than one of those states allow for it. Yeah, I think we are talking about uh, many elections. I just wanted our listeners to know that in Connecticut, uh, there is no election. It's mandatory for all the past two entities. So that's, you know, and, that's the only state that is mandatory. Yes. Every other state you have to elect in. In yep. Connecticut, you, you can't elect in. You can't elect out. It's automatic. You're in. Great. Thank you both, uh, Tom and Raysa. This has been really helpful. It's a little bit dense at times in terms of the topics that we cover, but I think we did a good job of covering the overall benefits of some of the issues that potential that listeners should be considering. So if I could ask each of you to share your email addresses so listeners can reach out to you if they want to engage you to assist them with their planning. So mine is tom.boman at novaco.com. And that is T-O-M, just so our listeners know, it's T-O-M dot versus T-H-O-M or some other version of Tom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. T-O-M dot B-O-M-A-N. Mine is Reza dot Karim at Novoco.com. I'll spell it uh, R-E-Z-A dot K-A-R-I-M at N-O-V-O-C-O dot C-O-M. And I'll also include uh, their contact information in today's show notes which will be posted to www.novaco.com slash podcast. So thank you both. And please be sure to stick around for our off mic portion of the podcast, where I get to issue, I get to ask you for some words of advice outside of taxes, or at least outside of directly being related to taxes, uh, get your words of wisdom in that area. Uh, to our listener, uh, be sure to tune into next week's podcast. You can be sure you're notified of that episode at each week's episode. But following or subscribing to the Tax Friends Tuesday podcast, simply go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Friends Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now, I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section. 
where listeners get some non-tax-related advice and words of wisdom from our podcast. I have three questions. I wanted to start with you, Tom. And the first question, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask podcast guests, is what's your favorite productivity tool or hack? Mine is uh, OneNote, which is a task list uh, a product. And prior to using that, I started using it in January. And prior to using that, I was rather uh, inconsistent in how I kept track of all the projects I'm working on. And now it's all electronic. It's all in the same place. I create a new page basically every week and then delete the old ones that tasks that I'm no longer doing on the new page and keep the ones I'm still working on. So that's really helped me to become much more organized and avoid missing the, you know, the finishing the tasks that I'm supposed to do. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm a big fan of OneNote and I use uh, OneNote all the ways that you were just describing. And I really like the fact that you can take email <laughs> through Outlook and very quickly shoot that email over to OneNote. So it's helped me not only be more efficient with all my tasks, but also, you know, helps me manage my inbox so that the inbox, nothing really stays in the inbox right along because if it's got something I need to do, then it, I move it over to OneNote. So thank you for that uh, tip. Well, you just illustrated that you're an expert user and I'm a novice user because I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll teach you. And you can teach me. We can start uh, collaborating on OneNote as well. That, that email add-on was way over my head. I was going to say what Tom was saying, that at least, but he stole my idea. So I would go for the fact that I think I like to take a break, even if it's five minutes uh, once I'm done with some tasks or, you know, if I have a lengthy task, maybe like in um, every 45 minutes, an hour, at least for 10 minutes, it really uh, makes a lot of difference. Sometimes you probably need to come out of what you were doing uh, so that you can, when you come back to it, you're more refreshed and he thinks that was not, you're not getting close to where you need to be and suddenly it becomes much easier. No, I, I, I try to do that as well. So I like that uh, tip. <laughs> so the uh, next question that I had is your top tip. We talked about productivity. Now we can talk about your top tip for achieving or preserving uh, a healthy work-life balance. Now I want to ask you if this tip is achieving or preserving your healthy work-life balance, but you can give me the tip that I, that I had to be thinking about and a listener ought to be thinking about. And Race, I'll let you go first. I think, I think it is trying to kind of like cool off from work, you know, from unfreeze the brain from like the work environment to like the home environment, you know, a good example would have been, you know, if I was driving or commuting, you know, I would use that time from being in, you know, consumed with all work-related thoughts and everything at that time would help me, you know, let that all these thoughts go. And then when I come home, I'm very energetic and, and, and I can spend a better time. I think with the, with the pandemic and everything, it's the commute has like been 10 second commute. So it's <laughs> being able to do that anymore. But I think this is one of the, my bosses told me too, that, you know, you need that time disengage at least, you know, from work and then, you know, have a nice evening. And then of course, you know, later on the night, we all have calls and whatnot, but you know, that you can, you can momentarily distract yourself with, with yes. something more important on the life side. Great. Thank you about Raysa. Tom, how about you? For me, you know, it's the fact that we can work at home these days much more easily. It, 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 it avoids, you know, a long commute that where you're very unproductive. And then it also allows you to do exactly what Reza said. So for example, 
I can go take my docs for a walk and get a little break from work and also then be of service to my family because someone may not be home to be able to do. So working from home, I think, is adds a lot to my productivity. But now I say that I don't have little kids that are bothering me trying to get my attention. So that <laughs> obviously would make a big difference if that was the case. At least not yet. <laughs> now that's, I totally agree in terms of some of the benefits of working from home along with the challenges and pretty a personal sort of uh, experience. So the third question and the final question that I'd like to ask each of you, in, and I have a lot of favorite questions. This one I also find uh, pretty interesting, and that's what life or career advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? So you don't have to tell us how many years ago <laughs> you were uh, 20, but I'll start with you, Tom, if you wanted to you know, share on what career advice you would give to yourself, to your 20-year-old. Mine would be that you need to be, you should become an expert in something. And then you should build a brand around being that, having that expertise. Um, that, that way you, do, you, you differentiate yourself among others and, and you draw work to yourself because of that expertise. Uh, ideally, it's something that is in demand where people, you know, want, uh, need advice or need that expertise, obviously. But I really think that's um, a, a smart way to approach a business career is become an expert and then build a brand. By building a brand, it means you're getting yourself out there in, in the world ident uh, and you identify self, yourself as a, an expert. And people see you, for example, at, at conferences speaking or in that area, you're demonstrating to people that you have an area of expertise. They see it. They see you speak. They, uh, you know, th they work with you. They understand your expertise. And over time, that can really help your uh, career flourish. No, that's a, a great advice. I mean, ultimately, you know, I remember when I started my career at Arthur Anderson, there was a comment that the head of the tax department, well, well, for each person who worked there, he'd have one, two or three impressions of somebody because he couldn't have an immense impression of everybody. So someone told me, you get to decide what impression you want him to have. And that's kind of what your branding is, is you get to, you know, you have control over what impression, you know, those you work with, you know, have of you. And by building that brand and you're helping control that impression. So the question right. for our listeners is what's my brand is I'm an expert in partnership tax. And that's evidenced by the fact that every day I get a, a call or an email from either a client or someone in Nova Gradic. Uh, asking a question on partnership tax. I'll just say that's, that's one of your sub brands. You have a lot of brands that <laughs> you build up, but I, I won't uh, flatter you too much by running through the list of areas where you're an expert. Raysa, how about you? I think looking back, you know, if I were 20 year old, I would tell myself to invest more time in, in developing relationships around my work with my colleagues and also with clients. I still have my first boss mentoring me, you know, he's away in Japan, but it's, but I, I just wish that I had invested more, more in, in building relationships in and outside of my work, because, you know, um, you learn. Uh, from your colleagues, your, your, you know, seniors at work or juniors at work, you learn from your clients. So I would focus on, on, on relationships as well. And I totally agree with what Tom said about being a subject matter specialist or expert, but I think it, you learn a lot from life as well. And one way to get it is, is through having this, you know, long 
relationships with your colleagues and, and clients and, you know, in general. I would, I would add yeah. to that, that there aren't enough mentors out there. And being a good mentor is really valuable. Yes. So if you can become a good mentor, people will recognize that and appreciate that, you know, for the rest of their careers. And so, uh, you know, go forward and be, and be a mentor. Yep. I agree. Well, that's a great way to end the podcast. Go forward and be a mentor. I love it. So that is uh, it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.